Well, on the first Pentecost, as we understand it from the New Testament times, God poured out His Holy Spirit and He gave the gift of tongues to the early apostles. What an amazing day that must have been. Can you just imagine being there? You see, we read the story. We know what happened. They didn't. They had no idea that they were suddenly going to become bilingual, trilingual, quadlingual, whatever it was, uh, where they could speak in other languages. They didn't know that. They had no idea that that's what God had in mind for that day. I wonder what it would be like if you were there, if I were there. If I were there, I would know that there's a miracle because languages are not my strength. Uh, But some of you can speak a second language. And actually, every one of us in this room speaks more than one language. Don't know if you realize that or not. I really speak two. I speak English, and all all the others are Greek to me. (laughs) But there's another language we speak, and I'll get to that in due time. That's the tease to keep you awake the rest of the time here, because it'll take me a while to get to that. This afternoon, we're going to take a look at what happened on this day 1,990 years ago. I don't know if you realize that. It was 1,990 years ago. If our understanding is correct, which we believe it is, that the uh, day of Pentecost was in 31 A.D., And there are reasons why we believe that, of course. You get into all kinds of calendar issues and different things when you go back that far. But nevertheless, that is uh, where we believe that the day of Pentecost took place, where the crucifixion and resurrection was 31 A.D. So it was, if my math is correct, I think it is, it was 1,990 days or years ago. And we're going to review three lessons that this day teaches us about the Holy Spirit. And then we're going to discuss the language or languages that you speak. Can you imagine what it was like at that time when Christ was crucified? Here was the miracle worker who suddenly was brutally killed by the Romans, but really by the the Jews and everybody else that uh, pressured uh, Pilate to to have him crucified. They'd watched him all those years, three and a half years at least for most of the apostles, and they had seen the miracles that he had performed. He actually brought Lazarus back to life just a very short time before the crucifixion. And so you would think that they would have understood that he could be resurrected. But when the miracle worker, the one who's performed all those miracles, is dead, then who's going to do it after that? God, of course. But they'd not seen God directly. They'd only seen God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. That was a different situation. And again, They didn't know the outcome, even though they were told. How many times have we been told something and we didn't get it? Especially when we were young. Now, I don't want to pick on young people, uh, but, you know, I was young then, too. And and you hear things from mom and dad and, and others, but it doesn't really sink in until much later in life. And you look back. 
That's just the way it is. And here are the apostles. They were in their 30s. They've been told that he was going to, you know, destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up. And they, they heard him uh, talk about how, you know, he was going to be uh, taken in custody and, and three, he'd be resurrected after three days and in three days and so forth. They heard all those things, but they didn't get it. And I know that as human beings, we think that, well, if I were there, I would have gotten it. I don't think so. I think that each one of us would have been just like the apostles. We wouldn't have really gotten it. We, we didn't really understand because they didn't exactly know the plan of God. They knew certain things about God's plan, but they didn't understand all that. So in Luke, the 24th chapter, we pick up the story after the crucifixion and after Jesus' resurrection a very short time after that. And in verse 40, let's go to verse 45, where he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. So he explained to them what God's plan was and how this had all been spelled out in the Scriptures. And he probably showed them the 53rd chapter of uh, Isaiah, Psalm 22, various other Old Testament scriptures showing what was to happen. And they probably thought, wow, why didn't we get that? Well, then it says here in verse 46, Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and repent that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name, to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Now the eleven were there because Judas obviously was no longer there. And he said, you are witnesses of these things. You are to take this message and be a witness to the world of the things that happen. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry or wait in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Now, I imagine that that was a little bit of an enigma to them, be endued with power from on high. And they would be, uh, as it says elsewhere, that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is something that they didn't know because, again, they didn't know the end of the story or the they didn't know this, how the story was going to play out. It's so easy for us to look at it because we know what happened, but they didn't know it was going to happen. Now, Luke also wrote the book of Acts, and that's where we pick it up in the book of Acts, the first chapter. He addresses this to Theophilus, and we find that... Uh, he presented himself alive. This is verse 3 of Acts 1. After his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So the message was the same after he was resurrected, the kingdom of God. And he did that for a period of 40 days. Now we know it's 50 days, so what happened in between there? Or what happened at the end of the 40 days? And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. 
which, he said, you have heard from me. So they had heard this promise from him. It came from the Father, but it came through Jesus Christ. But what did that mean to them? A promise of some sort. He says here in verse 5, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Again, what did that mean to them? Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That was what was on their mind. They knew that he came uh, you know, talking about the kingdom of God. They understood it in a very physical way. And at that time, and he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So this must have been about ten days before the day of Pentecost. And so they're waiting there at Jerusalem. We find that they were meeting together at the temple daily. And they were preaching Christ, what uh, they, they knew that he had been resurrected and everything. But then we pick up the story in chapter 2. And you know what's missing from this as we read it here? We're missing the music. If you go to a movie... There's always the music, isn't there? Remember Jaws, for those of you who are old enough to remember, the bum, 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 bum. It, you know that somebody's going to be eaten uh, because the music tells you so. Or any, you know, D-rated black and white monster movie of years gone by, you just know, you know the expendable actors and you know that, when they're going to be eaten just about because of the music. There's no music here. Now, they may have sung a hymn. I don't know. It doesn't say anything about that. But what we do know is that this is not a Pentecostal speaking in tongue service, as we see in today's world. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, which, of course, was one of the holy days that is mentioned in the Old Testament and the 23rd chapter of Leviticus, as was read to us earlier about how to count it or we need to count it. So they were keeping one of the holy days, and it's interesting how the Pentecostal types, no offense to them, they don't know any better. Their minds are blinded. And as we read earlier in John 6:44, uh, earlier today, as it was mentioned, that God has to call us. And, and a lot of people haven't been called. Most people haven't been called. They don't know any better. They just get caught up in that, and some of you might have come from that background as well. But it says, they were all with one accord in one place. They were keeping one of the holy days of God. This was not Christmas. It was not Easter. It was not St. Valentine's Day or some other holiday, Halloween, as the world has it. This was one of the holy days of God. And they were all there with one accord. And notice verse 2, suddenly, suddenly. No music working up the, the spirit in some way. They had no idea what was going to happen. They didn't know that God was going to pour out the gift of tongues upon the church at that time. It says, suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. 
So just imagine as we're sitting here, all of a sudden this powerful wind, maybe like a tornado's coming from outside, but it was filling the whole house where they were. And the word house there needs to be understood. It wasn't in the upper room that sometimes people think of. This was at the temple. There are a number of scriptures that speak of the temple as the house of God and so forth. But it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Notice they were sitting. They weren't up, you know, waving their arms, uh, trying to work up the spirit. They were sitting and they were listening, no doubt, to one of the apostles or all the apostles speaking at uh, various uh, times. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this was a gift of God that gave them the ability to speak in other tongues. Now, as we'll see, these are not uh, tongues of gibberish. Uh, these are languages that could be understood. And when it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, we know that God poured out the Holy Spirit on all of them. But it says, and began to speak with other tongues. A little bit later, that's qualified. And we'll see that here. Verse 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together. This was not, again, an upper room. They Nobody would have known about it outside, but this was at the temple, and uh, it's one of the, the porticos or one of the, the places where they could meet. And so this was heard all over that, that area there, and people came running together to find out what is going on here. And so there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Verse 6, and when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Now, the question is, who did they hear speak in their own language? Was this Sister, you know, Susan uh, jumping up on the, the chair and, and dancing and speaking? Uh, or, as it says here, then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? Who were the Galileans? They were the apostles. This was not a disorderly uh, service of some sort. Now, it may be, I don't know, it may be that everybody had the ability to speak in some other language at that point in time, but the ones who were preaching to the others, the ones that were in charge, were the apostles, very clearly. They were the ones from Galilee. Are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we... Here, each in his own language or tongue in which we were born. And then it lists about 15 different dialects or languages, people from various places, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and uh, those from uh, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia. It goes on there in verses 9, 10, and 11, speaking of these people that had come from different areas. Now, there were Jews that had been scattered throughout the world just as there are even today. There are Russian Jews, there are German Jews, there are French Jews, there are uh, Jews from all over the, you know, the Middle East, uh, especially, obviously, Israel, and they speak different languages. So they were coming up to Jerusalem probably for the uh, fact that it was the day of Pentecost or the Feast of, of Harvest, Feast of Weeks uh, at, at that time. And so they were there, 
And all this took place, and suddenly they're hearing these people speak in their dialects and their languages. Now, there's a lot that we don't understand there, but what we do understand, this was not some sort of gibberish that they were speaking. They were speaking things that could be understood. And notice in verse 11, Cretans, Arabs, says, We hear them speaking in our own tongues, our own languages, the wonderful works of God. That's what they were hearing. They were hearing the wonderful works of God that were spoken there at that time. Now, notice that this power was poured out for the preaching of the gospel. To be able to preach these people from all over the Mediterranean area, uh, the, the works, the wonderful works of God, no doubt they would have been talking about the crucifixion, the resurrection, the meaning of uh, Christ's life and, and purpose there and the coming kingdom that he preached to them about. These were things, obviously, that they would have been talking to them about. Now, this power that came upon them was not just to speak in tongues, but it was more than that. It was a, a boldness that they were given. Remember that Peter fled and he, well, he denied Christ. I say fled. He denied Christ three times on the night in which Christ was crucified. Even though he thought that he was tough enough, strong enough, that he would defend Christ, he actually denied him. But here, a very short time afterward, after the Holy Spirit is poured out on them, we read of the work of the apostles, and especially Peter and John, in the third chapter, and how they went up to the temple. And they saw this man that was uh, crippled there, and they didn't say uh, physically challenged. Uh, they, they didn't have political correctness there at that time. Uh, but they, they said, uh, you know, here was this individual, and Peter looks at him, and he says, look at us, verse 5 of chapter 3. So he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Now, that was pretty bold when you think about it. They may have anointed people before and they were healed, but here's Peter, and he's very bold this time, and he, he knows from God's Spirit, that this man will react in a positive way, that he'll be healed. And so the man then received strength in his ankle bones, and he leaped up, and he stood walking and entering the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God, and apparently hanging on to them. Maybe he wasn't all, quote, balanced yet at that point in time, but hang on to them. And everybody knew who this man was. This was not somebody from out of town that fakes something, coming in a wheelchair and then jumps up afterward. This was someone that everybody knew because when they went up to the temple, there were only so many entranceways there, and people had seen him for who knows how many years. And so he is healed in that sense. Not in that sense, but in a, a very real sense, and they couldn't deny it. Now, as they preached the Word of God to the people there in the temple, and they could see this man that was healed, that would have given them a lot of encouragement to be able to preach the truth at that point in time. We find that the, uh, the captain of the temple, chapter 4, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. 
So they laid hands on them and they put them in custody until the next day. In other words, they they put them in some sort of a, a prison of whether it was in a dungeon or whatever it was, but they put them under lock and key uh, until the next day, for it was already evening. And it says, verse 4, However, many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of men came to be about 5,000, so it increased from 3,000 to 5,000. And certainly this uh, healing of this man uh, had, a, had a profound effect on them. So they call them into question. And verse 7, when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? What power do you have to have done this sort of thing? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, verse 9, If if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all, And to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Now, that would have really stung because he's telling the leaders, look, you crucified him. You killed this one. And it was by him that this man has been raised up. He says, whom God, and he says of of this one that you killed, Christ, God raised him from the dead. And this man stands here uh, before you whole As a result, this is the stone, referring to Christ, which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained, they didn't have a um, a degree from a local seminary, uh, as we would see in today's world. They didn't have letters behind their names, but they saw that uh, these people had been with Jesus, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. So they threatened them uh, not to speak in the name of of, uh, Christ anymore, and then... Uh, we, we see in verse, let's go down to verse 29, a little bit later here. Uh, this was after they had a threatened. And it says in verse, well, it's verse 27. That's where I want to go. He says, For they truly against your holy servant uh, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and thus uh, Pilate. This is when they came to the disciples there with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, as they're praying, he says, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Notice that it mentions here with boldness. And they prayed that God would give them boldness. Well, that's, you know, what is boldness? I looked up the word just to see 
what it meant in the original Greek. And it says, all out spokenness. In other words, the boldness isn't just with actions, but it's with what they spoke. Frankness, bluntness, by implication, assurance, bold or boldness, confidence, uh, openly or plainly or plainness. In other words, the boldness that's speaking here is to be able to speak the word with boldness, to be able to talk that way. Now, God gave them the gift of tongues. Now, He's giving them boldness of speech. And I don't mean in some other tongue at this point in time, but boldness of speech, to speak clearly and forcefully the truth of God and not to be intimidated by these leaders that had already put to death Jesus and he could put them to death. And as we know, James was put to death by Herod and Peter was thrown into prison a little bit later uh, and was going to be put to death as well. This was a very different world. We're not quite there yet. Yet. But we're getting to the place where to speak the truth is going to be very politically incorrect. It already is in some places in the world. And uh, in this country, it's already being squelched in certain certain ways. I, I can remember even back, uh, anybody remember Phil Donahue on, on television? Okay, some of us older folks. I, I should ask how many of the young ones don't know who Phil Donahue was, but I... Um, uh, he was he he was really one of the first people to have one of these shows where he'd bring on really crazy guests usually or or individuals and he would interview them and you get people that are uh, wanting to discuss they were the former against him and he'd go around run back and forth with his microphone to hear what people had to say and if you ever watched it every time somebody wanted to go to the Bible boy he couldn't get away from them fast enough. He didn't want to hear that because the Bible is speaking for God, and that means there's no more there's no more argument over this. This is what God says. You know, if you're talking about someone who is uh, an adulterer, as, as, as an example, boy, you bring the Bible in, and that settles the issue. But if you don't have the Bible, then you can argue on both sides, whether it's good or whether it's bad. And he loved to get people arguing back and forth, and he became... Quite, quite famous, and then uh, you had Geraldo Rivera had his program, and I don't remember all the different people down through the time, but you had different ones. Uh, there's another one I'm trying to think of. I can't remember his name, but uh, some of you remember those things. They loved to argue. They loved to debate, but keep the Bible out of it because that settles the issue. That was early on what you might say political correctness in that we don't want to hear it. Now it's much more vicious. They don't want to hear the truth of God. It's, uh, it's a different world today. But we ought to have boldness. Let's start, turn over to Philippians, the first chapter. Philippians 1. God gave His Spirit to the New Testament church in part that they would have boldness. They would have power. Uh, power to perform miracles, but also the, the verbal power to, to not hold back. In Philippians 1 and verse 19, it says here, For I know that this, this will turn out for my deliverance, 
through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul was in prison at this time. And he's saying, I know that this will work out well. In fact, a little bit earlier, he says that it's evident in verse 13 that the whole palace guard and all the rest uh, that my chains are in Christ. They, they know that. They understand that. So it's, pro- it's promoting the, the work, as he's saying. And so he says, I know this will work out, verse 19, for my deliverance through your prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ through your prayers. But he says, the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. God's Spirit cannot be left out of this. And the Spirit is not a person, as I think most of us understand, but it is the power that flows out from God. It is the mind of God. It is the understanding of God's will. The mind of God, the power of God flowing out. And he says through prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. A very interesting sermonette there with the cell phone. That, that, that's beautiful. I, uh, that, that kind of brings it home, doesn't it? Uh, puts a modern twist on it. But the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness... As always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So he is saying that with your prayers and with the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ uh, to give me boldness moving forward, then whether I live or whether I die, it will go on to the furtherance of the preaching of the gospel in my life or in my death, whichever it may be. It doesn't stop from that happening. So the first thing that I want to bring out here is that the Holy Spirit is a spirit of power. It's a spirit of power. Now, the next point is found over in Romans, the fifth chapter, Romans 5. And we'll begin in verse 1. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which he stands and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. You know, that, that's, that's quite a statement. We glory in tribulations. Uh, this, this is uh, Mr. Strain in his... Uh, bulletin this last week pointed out that, you know, we say this is awful, this is terrible, this is, uh, I forget what the word was, but it's bad in comparison to what? You know, this is not, I, I don't want to minimize the struggle that some people have had. Uh, some people living in Canada, some people living in Britain, some people living in Europe, Some people living in other parts of the world have had it far worse than we've had it here. We've had a lot of freedom here in the United States. Now, some of you have lost family or relatives, and that can never be pleasant. Uh, Although we do know that really we're all going to die at some point in time. But to lose someone, especially to a pandemic as we've had here, does strike fear into the hearts of, of many others because you realize, well, if, if they can, well, then I can too. And so I don't mean to minimize that, but it's been stated here, 
it's going to get a lot worse. Now, I, I, in a way, I kind of hate to say that because our young people find life enough discouraging. I, I know there's a, a report there that something like 51% of our young people uh, are lacking hope. Uh, they, they, they're afraid of what's coming. Well, you know, if you do what's right, it's going to work out. It really is going to work out. One way or the other, God is going to work it out for you. And even if we go to an early grave, which, you know, most of you won't, that's for sure. Uh, I say for sure. I think that's uh, fairly, uh, I can say that at least at this point, not from COVID. Uh, but, you know, it's one of those things that, that life is, is out here and there is a period of time left. Don't. Don't get so discouraged you think, oh, everything's so awful, terrible, well, then, you know, uh, there, there's no hope whatsoever. There's a lot of hope. I remember my wife and I, when we were ambassador to college, we thought that the end was going to come sometime in the 70s. And we used to talk about marriage on the rocks, meaning Petra. <laughs> so we used to talk about that. And we had no idea that we'd be sitting here in 2021. Now, I'm not saying by that that there is no end to these things. But just do what you should do right now. Whatever is the right thing to do in terms of your life at this time, whether it be get an education or, uh, you know, get married, whatever it, it is right for you at this time, just do it. And don't worry about the, you know, the things that are coming. Today has enough problems. And as, as Mr. Strain said, the most important day, I think it was Mr. Strain, I, I read that someplace, uh, is today. It's today. You can't change yesterday, and you can't do anything about tomorrow directly other than do what is right today. So don't get discouraged, young people. There's a, there's a wonderful life ahead of you uh, yet, but there are some difficult times. And you are better prepared for it because of what you've gone through this last year than you would have been otherwise. You've seen that, well, you got through it. I come in here and I see all these young people and they're chattering back and forth and they're, I guess they're smiling. I think they're smiling. Their eyes are smiling. And uh, they, they seem to be happy. You know, there, there's a wonderful life yet ahead of us, even during difficult times. And I always go back to Daniel and, and his three friends. I mean, here they went into captivity. This must have been something so awful and so terrible. Makes what we've gone through look pretty simple. And yet, look what God did with them and through them. Daniel continued on in, you know, something like 80 years. He was in his 80s when he was still serving the, uh, uh, which was, when was it, Darius, uh, uh, whichever one it was there. Uh, so there are, are good things that can happen, especially if you're obeying God. There's still wonderful things out there for our young people. And don't, don't get in a rush to have everything now. Uh, who knows how much time we have? We can speculate. But one thing I've learned about speculations is that everyone I've ever heard has been wrong so far when it comes to time. We know where the world is headed. We can see that. The handwriting is on the wall. But exactly how long it will take, nobody knows. We, you know, somebody eventually will have it right because eventually somebody's got to hit the right date someplace. But it's probably not you, and it's certainly not me. And as I always say, my speculation is just as lousy as yours when it comes to speculation. 
So enjoy life. I, I don't want to scare our young people because there is a good life yet ahead of them. And it's going to be an exciting life. It's going to be a challenging life. But people who are challenged by difficult times are strong and they're tough. And they're, they're, they're better for it in the long run. Look how many, how many uh, athletes have gone through very difficult times. Some have had cancer. Some have had, you know, a lot of injuries. But they come through it, and they're stronger individuals as a result of it. So uh, be encouraged. Don't get discouraged by the fact that some things are not always going to turn out just the way we want them. But he says here, um, he says in verse 3, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. So do we glory in tribulations? Do we glory in the difficult things and how they are changing us in a positive way, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. You're able to persevere difficult things. When you go through one trial, you know the next one that comes along, well, I made it through that, I can make it through this. This one's easy compared to the last one. Or maybe it's more difficult, but I made it through that, I know I can do it here. You know, when I was young, let me just give this side thing here. When I graduated, I say graduated, when I got out of... Uh, of, of grade school, so I think sixth grade, I was worried about junior high school. I what was I, 12 years old? I don't know, something like that. I was worried about high school. I thought, oh, man, I can't make it because they would tell you how hard you had to study and all that sort of thing. And then when I graduated from junior high school or passed on to high school, I really was worried because they said, you know, all these papers you have to do and all this hard work you have to do. And I, one of those few times I talked to my mother, I was really concerned about it. And I went off to high school, and somehow I made it through there. And then when I was ready to go to college, you know, I finally figured it out. I, I remembered that those kids in grade school uh, that were with me, that I was always worried I'd fall behind, well, we all kind of made it through together. And then from junior high, we went on to high school. We all made it together. And I figured when I went off to college, and although they talked about how difficult that was going to be, I figured, look, these are the same dummies I've been, you know, going to school with the rest of the time. And, you know, I, I, I can compete with them, So, uh, although there are a lot of people smarter. But you, you realize that, you know, one helps you through the next trial that you have. And... It's important to realize that, that you can make it, and you can persevere, and, and perseverance is, is very important. And perseverance builds character, godly character, and character hope. And notice verse 5, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So we see that love is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. This is one of the gifts or one of the, the, uh, the points that I want to make here. And I'm not covering every point that could be covered here. But one of the, the points of what God's Spirit does to us, it gives us perseverance, but it gives us love. And, and love is not what this world thinks of when it thinks of love. This world thinks of love as Pitter-patter, pitter-patter, pitter-patter. You know, the heart. Uh, but real love is action. Notice Acts, the fifth chapter. 
Acts 5 and verse 32, we are familiar with this. It's a memorization scripture, Acts 5:32, where it says, uh, And we are His witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. So there's a connection between, as we shall see, there's a connection between love and obedience. And I'll make that connection here. Uh, let's go to Matthew, the 22nd chapter, Matthew 22. And we'll pick it up in verse 34. It says, when the Pharisee heard that he had been silenced by the Sadducees, uh, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now, the law and the prophets hang on the, the, the one word, love. Love toward God and love toward neighbor. And so if the love of God is spread in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, there's going to be obedience to God. God is going to give us His Spirit as we obey Him. He's not going to give His Holy Spirit to people who think His law is done away with. When you look at the uh, charismatic movement in the world, they really think that, well, if you speak in tongues, that's proof of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to keep the law. And yet that is so contrary to Scripture. The, the law of God teaches us love. But it teaches us love when God's Spirit is working together in our minds with that law. It's not just the physical law, but it's the understanding of the law and how it applies and how it applies to me. Not just everybody else. Notice over in John, the first uh, John, the fifth chapter, first John five and verse three, a memorization scripture for this is the love of God. This is God's love, the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And, and notice, uh, let's go to, uh, well, let's, let's go back to, um, uh, Deuteronomy, the fifth chapter, it was covered earlier, but I want to uh, go back there again. Very important passage. God gave the law. He gave the Ten Commandments in a, a codified form. It wasn't that they weren't in a forest before this time. Uh, we know the Sabbath was before they got to Mount Sinai. We know that it was created at creation. We know that it was a sin to commit adultery or to kill. We, we see that from the Old Testament there long before they ever got to Mount Sinai. But here's the restatement of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy in the fifth chapter. And then verse 29, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments, that it might be well with them and their children forever. That was covered this morning. But again, they did not have the heart to obey. There was something missing. You can have the law, the Ten Commandments, but if you don't have God's Spirit, uh, you're not going to be able to keep them in the, the full 
spirit or intent of the law. Now, I don't mean by that the young people can't keep the Ten Commandments in, in the letter of the law, but when it comes to really comprehending the full magnitude of them, that when a wrong thought comes into your mind, you must put that thought out. God's Spirit indicates that this is a wrong thought, and you put it out immediately. A young person can work on that, but, uh, you know, God's Spirit is working with you, but shall be in you. It becomes a part of you. When we look back on the worldwide church of God as an example, we had a lot of people that understood about the Sabbath. But where are those people? Where'd they all go? They knew about the holy days, but something was missing. Perhaps it was that their, their battery got low. And then when the trial came, they weren't ready to handle it. They were sitting high in the saddle, so to speak. Next thing you know, they're sitting on the ground wondering, how did I get there? Or maybe they don't even care how they got there. They just pick themselves up, dust themselves off, and go off into the world. So God's Spirit is working with us concerning the law, teaching us the way that we should live our lives. We all know from Hebrews, the eighth chapter, that the new covenant, this quotes from Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, verse 31 through 34. But here in Hebrews, the eighth chapter, it's hard not to read this on this day. He talks about the first covenant had a fault in verse 7. And the fault was the people. Behold, the days are coming, says Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Then verse 10, Hebrews the uh, eighth chapter, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Eternal, or the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So ancient Israel had the law, but it wasn't written in their minds, in their hearts. And that's what has to happen with you and me. We have to have the law of God written in our mind and in our hearts. And there's a certain element of, of, uh, uh, of allowing that to happen. Uh, God has to do it, but we have to work with God's Spirit. When God's Spirit reminds us of something that we don't want to do, and we say, okay, that's what I've got to do, and we give in to God's Spirit as opposed to the Spirit of this world, then it becomes more a part of us. It internalizes the law of God in our hearts and our minds. And God takes away that hostility to the law. Uh, Romans 8, verse 7, where it says, uh, uh, how does it say? The law of God is uh, the carnal mind. It's enmity against God. It's at variance with God. Uh, it's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That is the carnal human mind. It's not subject to God's law, but it is God's Spirit in us that transforms that so that we can live by the commandments that teach us what real love is. It teaches us a way of life that is so different, so radically different from the way of this world. 
the way of this world is to take care of the self. God's law shows us how to love God and how to love our neighbor. And this is what the Holy Spirit does for us if we are nourishing and feeding that spirit as he does work with us. Let's notice over in the 36th chapter of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36. And I'm going to start in verse 26 because, not verse 26, but um, I want to go a little bit further than that. Let's go back to... Back a little bit more in that chapter here. Verse 22. Let's go back to verse 22. It says, Therefore say to the house of Israel. Now this is talking of ancient Israel at that time, but as we'll see, it applies in the future here. Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this For your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, uh, which you have profaned among the nations uh, wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. So that's kind of the context of this. And I'll get back to that a little bit later. But notice verse 26. He says, I will give you, that's the people of Israel, and eventually the whole world, So I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now, why does God do this? Well, remember that Israel didn't have the heart to obey. And now God says he's going to put his spirit, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll keep my judgments and do them. So that's what God says he's going to do. With his spirit, he's going to put it in us so that we will keep his statutes and his judgments. We'll have the desire to do so. We will have that hardened heart taken away from us. In 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12, God's spirit is supposed to transform us to be very different from the way that we are as carnal people. He says here in verse 25, he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit. He's talking about uh, how, well, if you go back to chapter 12, verse 13, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. And the point was made a little bit earlier that we can't join the church. And that's the reason why we can't join it, because, you see, God has to give you His Spirit. If he doesn't give you his spirit, you're none of his. And that's something you can't, quote, join. I know that's a very subtle difference there. People say, well, I want to join the church. Well, no, you can repent. If God grants repentance to you, you can repent. And you can receive the Holy Spirit and God puts you into his church. But you can't just say, okay, I'm going to join the church. Now I'm going to go through this baptism ceremony. I'm going to do all these things and somehow meet all the requirements in in a physical sense. No, God has to, to work with you, and, and uh, that, that, uh, the idea that I can just join the church, I know people have said that, and it doesn't mean they're not converted, but they just really don't understand that God grants repentance, and then he has to give you his spirit, because those who don't have his spirit are none of his, if you don't have the spirit of Christ in you. 
Now here, it's talking about the Holy Spirit. And it says here, uh, down in verse 25, that there should be no schism, no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. That means we have to care for one another. If God's Spirit is in us, we're going to have different jobs, different responsibilities, different talents, different strengths, but we have to have love for one another. We have to have outgoing concern for one another, deep concern for one another. When we have a prayer request go out, do we take that seriously or do we rely on somebody else to pray? Or do we try to get to our knees as soon after as, as we can on that and really cry out to God on these prayer requests? I, I hope we, we really will, and I know that many people do. We could go over to the next chapter. Uh, he's talking here about the gift of, of tongues. And if notice, uh, you know, the, the next chapter, 14th chapter, has a lot about the, the gift of tongues. But here in chapter uh, 12, verse 31, it says, And earnestly desire the best gifts. And so you have all these different gifts that he can give. Well, let's just list those. Uh, verse 28, God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, prophets, uh, third, teachers, after that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various or varieties of tongues or languages. And he says, are all apostles, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Do all have the gift of tongues? Do all interpret? But he says, desire earnestly the best gifts. And he goes right into the 13th chapter, which is the love chapter. And he shows us that love is, is action. Love suffers long, verse 4. It's kind. It does not envy. It does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked and thinks no evil. You can read through this chapter. I think you've probably read it many times. But the point is that the best gift is love, as it says there in verse 13. Now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So God gives us His Spirit to write His laws in our hearts and our minds and to give us that outgoing concern for the other individual. That's the second thing. It's the spirit of power, and it's the spirit of love. Now, let's notice also... It's a spirit of a sound mind. 1 Corinthians 14, again, in verse 22. It's a spirit of a sound mind. And here we have in this chapter the discussion about tongues. And he says in verse 22, Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. When it speaks of prophesying in the New Testament, it just means inspired speaking. And so he says here that tongues are for a sign, not to believers, but to unbelievers. Well, how do we understand that? Do we all speak in tongues so that if somebody comes in, they would say, wow, this must be where God's Spirit is? That seems to be what some churches believe. Uh, but when we read the next couple of verses, it kind of seems to reverse it. Well, how is it... A, a sign. Well, it was on the day of Pentecost, 
because they were able to speak the wonderful works of God in all these different languages to these people. And then when God called the Gentiles, that was certainly a sign to the Jews, because when they are there, as Mr. O'Gwen brings out in the Bible study course on the subject of Pentecost, you can read that, and it's always good to review those. But when Peter and the others came to Cornelius, and Peter is speaking, and suddenly the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the Gentiles, and they begin to speak in tongues and praising God. And, and again, these weren't, this wasn't gibberish, but there were some languages, whatever they were, must have been understood by somebody that was there. They saw that the Holy Spirit had been poured out in the same way upon these people. We don't read of Peter or the other Jews speaking in tongues at that time, just the Gentiles, and they said, oh, wow, God has given the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles just as, in the same manner, as He did to us on the day of Pentecost, you know, some years before. And so that was a, a sign to the Jews at that point in time. Now let's go back here to 1 Corinthians 14. It says, Tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers, but prophesying or speaking with inspiration is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and everyone is speaking with tongues, he says, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers. Let's say that some we're all speaking in tongues here and having a gay old time and singing and praising God and, you know, walking on chairs and doing all the things that you know, happen in some of these churches, and somebody walks in over here, what are they going to think? They're going to think, these people are nuts. They're crazy. In fact, that's what Paul says. He says that they, they do that, the uninformed are believers. Will they not say that you are out of your mind? That there's something wrong here? So it is a sign to unbelievers when... You have it in the context of what happened there on Pentecost where this sound of the mighty rushing wind and everything and it got, gathered everybody together there. And again, they weren't speaking gibberish and they weren't just, you know, doing the things that go on in these, these churches, these charismatic churches. But Peter and the other apostles are speaking the wonderful words of God in language that they could understand. They were uninformed, but they could understand what was being said there to them. And it was a sign, just as it was to, to the Jews when the Gentiles spoke in tongues. But he's saying here, the whole church shouldn't just be, you know, running around uh, speaking a bunch of gibberish, as, uh, as is done in churches today. Not that he said gibberish, but he was just pointing out that uh, this is everything should be done decently in order without confusion and in peace as we see here in this chapter. So the carnal mind vainly opposes God's wisdom and it is not of a sound mind. Notice in Romans the first chapter with the carnal mind we find that it is a mind that is void of judgment. Notice verse 28. Of Romans 1. He's talking about those who um, have opposed and suppressed the truth and they get into all kinds of behaviors uh, that are contrary to even nature. 
And he says here in verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And so what we have here, really, is Second Timothy, the first chapter, Second Timothy 3. You probably have this already figured out. I'm sorry, Second Timothy 1, verse 6. It says, Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God is not, has not given us the spirit of fear. But here's what he's given us. He's given us a spirit of power. That power is to do the work of God. He's given us the spirit of love. And God has to write his law in our hearts and our minds in order for us to have that spirit of love and of a sound mind. When we disobey God, that's not a sound mind. When we obey God, then we are living according to a sound mind. And so we have those three particular qualities of the Holy Spirit when it's poured out upon us. Now, the apostles spoke the wonderful works of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I just ask you, what language are you speaking? Some of you are bilingual, trilingual. It's an amazing gift that that God has given you if you can speak several languages, although some of you are very young and may have come a lot easier for some than others. But it's a different language. But... When you look at the language that Jesus spoke in Luke 4, verse 22, when they were witnesses of it, and they wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, and they said, is this not the Joseph's son? So it wasn't the words exactly that he said, but they were gracious. They were, uh, they were without going concern, uh, they, they were kind words that were coming from the mouth of Jesus. And, you know, you can look up all the, the gracious means. But that's the way that Jesus spoke. On the other hand, in Colossians 3, verses 8 and 10, it says, But now you yourselves are put off, are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. That is a language that we should not speak. There are words that we should not speak. And yet the world throws this stuff out like it's nothing. It's hard to even pick up a book anymore, a nonfiction book or a fiction book, and not find a lot of filthy language in it. Some written by women speaking like they used to say drunken sailors or just a sailor. Uh, Language that should not come out of our mouths. He says, And put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him who created him. So what language do you speak in terms of what comes out of your mouth? And then there's another language that we speak, and that is our example. You all are familiar, if you're in a spokesman club, of the uh, statement, Your action speaks so loud I can't hear what you're saying. Our example speaks volumes, doesn't it? In Romans 2, Romans 2, and verse 17, 
It says, Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will, verse 18, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes having the form of knowledge and truth in the law, verse 24, 21, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? And notice verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Speaking of the Jews there as it is written. So, we speak language through our mouth, but we also speak the language of our example. And here he's saying that by our actions, we can speak a language that blasphemes God. And he actually quotes there from the Old Testament. Let's go back to Ezekiel 36 again. Got a little bit ahead of myself there, but let's go back to Ezekiel 36. He's speaking of the house of Israel in verse 22, and he's talking about his holy namesake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. You see, by their example, by Israel's example, instead of being that, you know, city on a shining hill, an example to the other nations, they had blasphemed or profaned the, na the name of God among the nations where they were sent. He says, And I will sanctify my great name which has been profaned among the nations which you have profaned in their midst, and the nation shall know that I am the Eternal, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries. So God is going to deal with them in the future. Our uh, people in the future, whether we are actual physical Israelites or just living in an Israelite nation, God is is judging us. We we are to be an example to the rest of the world, and we haven't been the right example. And He says, "I'm going to sprinkle you with clean water," verse 25, and you shall be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments and do them. You see, we are to be the people of God. And, you know, there, there are so many instances within the church where, you know, I don't know all of them. But I, I know that there are times when with you as individuals, uh, many of you, maybe all of us, hopefully all of us, do something that our neighbors or our coworkers see and they recognize that there's something different about us. And, you know, they may not like our religion, but they like what we do because the love of God is being shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. I, I remember an individual that worked on security in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was a security officer there at the place where we kept the Feast of Tabernacles. And he said, 
he was in the balcony. He said, I'm watching this guy down there. And he says, he's not one of yours. And uh, the other minister was with me. He said, well, you know, some of, you know, some of our people don't have the greatest example. This is in worldwide days. He said, no, he says, I can tell your people. This guy is not one of you. And he was watching him. And I've heard that similar sentiment from more than one person over the years. Uh, over on the dig, over in uh, Israel or someplace in the Middle East, uh, one of the professors said to one of our, our people or several of the people, he said, he says, your people are different. He said they're hardworking. But these people are hardworking. He said they're nice. But these people over here are nice. He was just thinking out loud. He said, ah, your people have a different spirit. I'll tell you, when you hear things like that, it just makes the hair in your head stand up. Our people are different. There's something different if we have God's spirit, even if God's spirit is just working with us. How many times have we had a wedding and we see the young people there uh, dancing and having a good time, and people say, where do these young people come from? How do they know all those dances? Why do they treat each other so nice? People see those things. You know, we speak a different language than the world does when we set the right example, when God's Spirit is flowing in us and out of us and through us. There's a day coming. There's a day coming when God will pour out on the whole world a new tongue, a new pure language. We read of that in Zechariah, the third chapter, in verse 9. And I think that it's probably talking not just about what comes out of the mouth, but we'll be speaking a new language in terms of the way that we live. It says, For then I will restore to the peoples a pure language, that they all may call in the name of the Lord to serve Him with one accord. There's coming a time when a new language will be spoken, physically and spiritually speaking. God poured out His Holy Spirit 1,990 years ago. And that Spirit is a Spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. There was given at that time a gift that accompanied the giving of the Holy Spirit, which was the gift of tongues, the gift of language. And we ought to learn to speak whether in audible tongues or by our actions, the wonderful works of God.